Our scripture this morning comes from the 20th chapter of John, it's verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Jesus stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned And said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to her disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. As God's word for us. On this Easter Sunday. Easter eggs, uh, we've already had an Easter egg hunt this morning, and we uh, just kind of ran through that literally. Boy, the, uh, there were, I don't know how many hundreds of eggs were up there, but they were all gathered up in about five or ten minutes, so it didn't take long. But uh, the Easter egg, where did that come from? Why do, we, uh, why do we have Easter eggs? It actually originated in Eastern Europe, it was not part of the Christian tradition. It was part of the culture there. Uh, they decorated eggs during springtime to uh, celebrate spring and celebrate the uh, emerging uh, flowers and, and everything else. And they, part of that celebration was to decorate eggs. Uh, Christian missionaries who went into that culture, rather than condemning that practice, said, hey, there might be an idea here that we can use. And so taking that egg... They uh, created and crafted a story around that. And, and the story was, or the, uh, the symbolism of the egg became then, that the shell, the outside of the shell, was uh, the tomb, was the wall uh, between the tomb. And then when you crack the egg open, there emerges life. There's the resurrection. In the early church in Eastern Europe, they used to decorate those eggs. They used to color them red to symbolize the blood of Christ. 
And so we've adopted that and, and uh, elaborated on that and put all kinds of things in, in, the, in the eggs and probably uh, so distorted that to, to some extent that we don't have any clue why we're you know, running around. Our children are running around trying to find eggs and we're helping them. I got a text this morning, I think it was about 5.15, very early, from uh, my second oldest son in North Carolina with a picture of, of his children. And uh, you, the familiar sound of the text, you, you know, when your phone goes and you guys know what that sounds like. And I don't know if you know what it sounds like at 5.15 or not, but, but uh, that was 15 minutes before I'd planned to get up early, or early, uh, you know, at, at uh, 5.30. And, uh, and believe me, I missed that 15 minutes, uh, you know, so, but, uh, but they were uh, celebrating Easter, finding Easter baskets, Easter eggs. Uh, Easter, those Easter eggs remind us of the empty tomb. So the story that we just read, first of all, begins with Mary Magdalene, and a number of years ago, when Nancy and I were in seminary together, the president of that seminary was a man named Randall Lolly. And Randall Lolly, in the last sermon that he preached at the seminary, uh, he entitled it, a, to- a Towel with Your Name on It. And the point of that sermon, it was particularly directed toward an affirmation of women in ministry, of the place of women in the church, of the importance of women in the church. And one of the things that he also uplifted was the fact that it was women who were last at the cross and in the Gospel of John, first at the tomb, Mary Magdalene. Found a towel with her name on it. Found and knew that she was important, important to God. That she had important work to do. That she had to get to the tomb and finish the burial preparation that she was unable to do on Friday because of sunset and because of Passover and because of the coming of the Sabbath. So she scurried off to to do her work. She recognized that she was a child of God. She found a towel with her name on it and went to the tomb. She came back uh, with the report that Jesus wasn't there and assumed that somebody had moved the body the two disciples, Peter and we believe John, the beloved disciple, as he uh, describes himself in the Gospel of John, go racing toward the tomb. Uh, John actually gets there first, the beloved disciple does, and uh, doesn't go in. And Peter uh, charges right in when he gets there. And it says in, in that part of the story, John, upon looking in, And seeing, he saw and believed. And the question is, what did he believe? There's a story, uh, really, that a man named Stephen Carter, who wrote a book called The Culture of Disbelief several years ago, there's a story, uh, actually two stories, that he tells about personal encounters, personal events in his life that uh, that have challenged his belief and challenged what... uh, the mission of the church should be and ought to be in this time and in this place. And the two stories, first one uh, was uh, he had visited or gone to Queens, which is where he uh, was from. He was at this time and still, uh, still is a professor at Yale University. 
but he went back home to visit. He took his five-year-old daughter with him, and much to uh, his surprise, indeed much to his horror, he got caught in a crossfire uh, between two gangs, warring gangs, and even more terrifying for him, he was separated from his daughter at that time. He couldn't get to her. She was down the sidewalk, and he could not uh, risk himself and his daughter by moving in that direction. So for several horrifying minutes, he was there praying that they would not come to harm. Now, he gives that in a lecture. He tells that story in a lecture called The Most Dangerous Children in America. And after he tells that story, he tells another story about riding a train from Connecticut, a transit train, uh, into New York City and the stops along the way at several uh, affluent communities in Connecticut. And as the train stopped, uh, teenagers were getting on the train to make a trip into New York. He uh, happened to be able to overhear the conversation as a number of them got on the train. And there was an argument going on between teenagers from Westport and teenagers from Fairfield, both in Connecticut. And the argument involved uh, which was the better community, which was the more uh, affluent, prestigious community to live in. And the argument went on and on, each uh, group trying to top the other by what celebrity they knew or what famous person they knew or about how much wealth there was in the community. And then finally, one of the girls from Fairfield talked about a well-known celebrity who she said lived in the community. And a girl from Westport said, I know he doesn't live in, the, in that community because he visits my father's store regularly. And as soon as she said the word store, it was like a red flag went up. She realized she shouldn't have mentioned that her parent owned a, owned a store. And the next thing that came out of the mouths of the people that she was talking to, what kind of store does he own? A hardware store? And she realized as she became uh, the subject or the victim of abuse at that point, that, that she'd made a, a critical error. So then Carter asked his audience, which group of children are the most dangerous? And he said almost always, uh, even with the two stories as they unfold, almost always people you know, said, well, the gangs in Queens are by far the most dangerous. But he goes on to say, consider this. Those kids that are in Queens are enclosed. They're not going to get out of Queens, more than likely. Uh, they'll live the rest of their lives there. In fact, their lives probably won't be very long if they live there. Uh, that doesn't dismiss the violence and what goes on there. But in a lot of ways, it's going to be confined to that particular area in Queens. Consider this other group. They're going to the best schools that our country has to offer. They're raised in, in uh, circumstances that most children will never enjoy. They'll have the opportunity to go on to even better schools if they're able to, capable of that. They'll have the opportunity to shape public conversation, public discourse. They'll have an oppor opportunity to shape and influence uh, the way we value, the kind of values that we have, which group is really more dangerous? 
The answer really is both. Because without some kind of system, some kind of way to to structure their belief systems, there's going to be too much violence and there's going to be too much ridicule and prejudice and oppression. Too much devaluing of people based on what they have or who they know. So what did John believe when he looked in that tomb? Because remember this, there's no resurrection appearance here. Jesus hasn't shown up yet. John's staring into an empty tomb. John, when he looks in, and those words, and he believed, in that moment, John remembers the promises that Jesus has made. Remember that God so loved the world that he gave. Remember that Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn. Jesus came into this world to save, to show us a a better way. Remember that Jesus said, set your troubled hearts at rest. Remember that when Jesus encountered people who were very different, who he wasn't supposed to talk to, he always talked to them. Remember that Jesus asked us to forgive as we've been forgiven. All those promises. In that moment, John realizes are fulfilled. That's what he was talking about. And that's the kind of word and that's the kind of of, of promise, that's the kind of blessing that everybody needs to know. People in Queens, people in Connecticut, people in Lafayette, Indiana. This picture of what Jesus saw that we could be as children of God, as people who love one another. One of the other final words that Jesus gives to us is love one another. You know, be so different as a community that people will see that and think, you know, that's the way it should be. That's what God, maybe that's what God's talking about. That kind of thing. Walking by that kind of faith. Well, the last scene of the verses we read, Jesus uh, finds Mary Magdalene. Uh, She doesn't find Jesus. Jesus finds her. And in that process, that that changes it. She changes everything for her. She goes later in the story running back and, and tells everybody again, I've seen him, I've seen him. That's the first resurrection appearance. First at the cross, or last at the cross, first at the tomb. I had the opportunity to go to South Africa a few years ago, and we were very interested, the group I was with, we were very interested in finding out more about truth and reconciliation. Truth and reconciliation was enacted in South South Africa when Nelson Mandela became president. It was a very simple idea. It was based on scripture, biblical idea. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so... The idea that was presented is, okay, if we get people to tell the truth, to repent, tell people what they did during the apartheid era, era, confess that. If they do that, if they stand before people that they have harmed and make that confession, if they speak the truth, we're going to forgive them. Now, you can imagine there was a lot of criticism. They should forgive them. 
okay, we'll, we'll forgive them after they've uh, spent you know, 30 years of their life behind bars. Uh, we'll forgive them as they die before uh, the executioner. <clears throat> a lot of criticism of Desmond Tutu, particularly, with that. One of uh, Tutu's critics said, uh, the problem with Desmond is that he actually believes the gospel. You'd think as long as he lived, he'd learn to uh, hate a little more, that he'd learn some, some things along the way. problem with Desmond is he believes this stuff. And how do, you, how do you cope with that? How do you deal with that? Somebody actually believes. But that changed the culture completely in South Africa. It kept them from horrific violence, or what could have been horrific violence. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus found Desmond Tutu when he was a child. And he lived out that truth, the truth that he experienced in Christ uh, his entire life, and he continues to live it out. Well, the tomb was empty. Several years ago, there was a Sunday school teacher that submitted an article and ended up being in several public publications. It was a story about a little boy in her class. His name was Tim. And Tim was uh, severely uh, handicapped, had physical and mental uh, challenges that he faced in his life. His parents had tried to mainstream him through, uh, through all of that, uh, put him in normal Sunday school classes, regular Sunday school classes. Uh, in regular school classes, Nancy and I have seen uh, Nancy's sister and, and brother-in-law, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, uh, do that with one of their children, severely, severely challenged. Uh, Amy was uh, not expected to live past age five. She's 22 or three now. And, uh, and still, uh, as best as her parents are able, they, they try to get her into to main, mainstream things. It's been an amazing kind of journey for them. This little boy in this Sunday school class was given an assignment along with the rest of the boys that were in the class, seven and eight-year-olds. He was told, uh, along with uh, his classmates, uh, the teacher gave him an egg, very much like the uh, eggs the kids were hunting this morning. Gave, given an egg, it was empty, and they were told, go out in the churchyard, find something that represents spring. You know, it's Easter. Find something that represents new life, and put it in your egg and bring it back. And so each of the kids uh, did that. The teacher was expecting stuff like butterflies and grass and flowers and all the rest of that. And the first few eggs that she opened, that's exactly what she got. She got to Tim's egg, and she opened it, and uh, there was nothing in it. Now, you know, kids can, can something just like we can, everybody can, adults, uh, sometimes say things that are hurtful. So they immediately began to uh, tease Tim. Ah, you didn't know the assignment. You didn't do what you were told. You brought back an empty egg. You were supposed to put something in the egg. Why didn't you put something in the egg? And Tim, this little boy with uh, severe uh, physical and mental challenges, spoke these words. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And the class got very quiet after that. Several weeks later, Tim uh, succumbed to the physical challenges that were part of his life, and he died. And at his funeral, his classmates, his seven-year-old Sunday school class, 
uh, when it came time, the teacher had asked if they could have a special moment during the service. All of them walked up to Tim's casket. All of them had eggs. All of them placed them on that casket. All of them empty, open. The tomb is empty. Because the beloved disciple believed in Jesus and the trustworthiness of his promises about himself and God, when he saw the empty tomb, he knew what, it, what that signaled, that Jesus had conquered death. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, and for your forgiveness. Lord, there are many things that we don't understand. There are many things that we still struggle with. There are many questions that we still have. Lord, we know that as we ask, you seek us, you find us, just like you found Mary uh, on that Easter morning. Just like you found so many countless numbers of people over the centuries. Oh God, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. For a love that endures forever, steadfast, that can never be changed. God, we thank you for these things in Christ Jesus. Amen.